Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. So the family ended up moving to Worcester to be with Frederick's brother. I'm going to stop you right so that there. To, yeah, I didn't say that right, did I? <laughs> yep. Stop right there. <laughs> One moment. Is it Worcester, sir? It's Worcester. Oh. Oh, what the heck? Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. On this week's episode, we will talk about Frances Perkins, FDR's Secretary of Labor slash main principal of the New Deal slash America's leading advocate for industrial safety and workers' rights slash the designer of public works programs and so much more. Basically, this woman did a lot of things that affects us today and we don't even know about it until now. I'm Jessica Rogers digesting a bowl of farfalle pasta with red sauce in Washington, D.C. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rar, about to eat arroz con habichuela in San Francisco. Oh, hey! Yeah? That sounds delicious, Lizzie. It will be. And I'm Nergeri Rivas, about to have ramen after this conversation in Houston, Texas. Yum. All right, now for our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning. All right. So, Frances Perkins, this woman is amazing and is probably one of my favorites of this season. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's, you'll see. So, a special shout out to a fan of the show, John Odom, who suggested her to Norgidi and who suggested it to me. And now here we are. Oh, you're really hyping her up. Yeah, I've been excited about Frances ever since John mentioned her to me. So I'm glad that I'm finally going to learn more about her. And, and, and I'm glad we are talking about her towards the end of our season because you'll see that this lady would make an appearance in some shape or form in almost each of this season's ladies. Oh, okay. Okay, come on, let's go. Okay, but before we got to tell the listeners Take this moment and pause this episode and go back 
and listen or re-listen to the beginning of this season because you'll want to be privy to, I don't know, let's see, Jane Double D Adams, <laughs> Catherine Bauer, you know, the blonde with the brunette ideas, <laughs> Jane Jacobs and the villain, and maybe a little bit of Margaret Angles and maybe throw in some Dorothy May and a sprinkle of Florence Nightingale. That sounds like a really good cocktail. Wait, that's like everyone. Exactly. <laughs> I told you. You'll see. Okay. So you listen to basically the past seven episodes, right? So it's like fresh on your brain, listeners and chicas. It's as fresh as it can be for me. Like laundry. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's begin. In April 10, 1880, a fresh spring lay upon Beacon Hill in Boston, Massachusetts. Just a few blocks from Boston Common, Fanny Coralie Perkins was born. Coralie, that's a pretty name. My great-grandma's name was Fanny, actually. Is that Eunice's mom? Yep, sure is. Shout out to Eunice. <laughs> yeah, Nana! Yeah, Eunice! <laughs> okay, so Fanny... She came from, I would say, a middle class family. Her great grandparents came from line brickmakers. They owned a brickmaking factory that got sold. And eventually her family went into the dairy business. And her father, Frederick Perkins, this blue eyed, refined man with upper class education, would marry Susan Bean, a plump, down to earth woman who came from a family of animal husbandry. <laughs> <laughs> I love all the descriptions we're getting today and the, I know. the fair spring day that she was born and <laughs> painting a picture. Yeah, I love it. Painting a picture. This sounds like a masterpiece theater show waiting to happen. Most certainly. Pinky's up. Ooh. Yes, a masterpiece theater. But in case you were wondering about animal husbandry, it's basically like breeding farm animals like cows and sheep and horses. So maybe not so, like, refined. So maybe put the pinky down. I don't know. Okay, but I just watched All Creatures Great and Small on Masterpiece, and it's about a rural vet. So it's that's what I meant. It's giving me those vibes. I'm telling you, Masterpiece Theater, here they come. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is that? Like, you just explained it, but... It's a great show. Shout out to PBS and Masterpiece. If you're looking for a show to hug you like a warm blanket, this will do it. Anyway, this is a weird tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, anyway, the family would move to Worcester to be with Frederick's brother so that together they would start their own paper goods business. This is refreshing. I feel like this season we ended up talking a lot about wealthy ladies. So talking about a working family try to make it on their own. It's more relatable to me than the others. Totally. I like hearing about a variety of women from different backgrounds. Yes. So Fanny, she came from a family that was also very conservative, Republican, and members of the Congregational Church, a Protestant denomination. Despite this, her family did encourage her to go to school, and Fanny would enroll in one of the oldest institutions for women, Mount Holyoke. That's interesting because during those times, Republicans were not seen as the conservative party like they are today. But I like that her family encouraged her to go to school despite the societal norms. It reminds me of Florence's dad on episode 21. Agreed. I'm always excited when our ladies had supportive families encouraging them. Yeah, that's true. So 
In college, Fanny studied physics, chemistry, and biology. She had taken a course on American economic history that required her to visit factories and mills, and this class in particular would have the most profound impact on Fanny. There, she would witness women and children working in poor working environments. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But before she graduated, she would also hear a lecture from Florence Kelly, a social activist that fought for children labor laws and reform in the workforce. Yeah. So Florence Kelly was one of the women who lived at Hull House and worked with Jane Addams, who you all remember from episode 23. Florence came from a similar background to Jane, upper middle class, and both of their dads were friends with Abraham Lincoln and helped him on his campaigns. So Florence helped with social reform and fighting for labor legislation for women and children. Yes. So inspired by Florence, after graduation, Fanny moved to Illinois to teach and began work in settlement housing at Hull House. Nice. So Jane and Fanny were friends. Great. Yeah. And her parents weren't too thrilled, though. They saw the homeless and poverty as alcoholics and lazy people. Oh. They wanted Fanny to get married, start a family after college, and, like, just work at the school or at church. They were appalled to think that their daughter was far from home and interested in things like social reform. This isn't funny, but it made me chuckle. Like, homelessness and poverty is for the alcoholics and the lazy and not anyone else? Yep, no one else. Okay, no one else falls victim to those (laughs) things. I can't be homeless. I am not an alcoholic. (laughs) Okay. I bet. Anyway, homegirl was a rebel. Okay, she wanted her independence. She knew from a young age that she wasn't about that traditional life. She moved to Illinois. She switched denominations and became Episcopalian. And she changed her name to Francis. Born again, Francis. Hmm. So was the name change a religious thing or a personal thing? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Mm. She was gearing up to make change happen. You know, uh, as soon as she started hanging out with Double D Adams and Florence, (laughs) she was getting to know people and make connections. And she wanted to be taken seriously. And she thought the name Fanny could easily be mocked. And Francis, you know, that's a more mature name. And it's kind of like gender neutral, which allowed her to get just a little bit further than most, I would say. Mm. Francis is a nice name, though. And neutral, like you said, like... Francis of Assisi, a guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Francis Underwood. Yes. <laughs> oh, Sorry. no, not that guy. Oh, Francis Underwood. <laughs> <laughs> not that guy. Let's stick with Francis y- of Assisi. Yours is a better first thought than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I really like the name Francis. Franny is a really cute nickname, too, versus Fanny. Sure. Less connotations there. Yeah. Well, so the now Francis... She was interested in learning about the women in the whole house sediments and the women working in the factories. And back then, working conditions were really bad. If you think the gender pay gap is something today, then you would be alarmed to know that it was way worse back then. Women would work in factories and still get paid so little that they would have to work as a sex worker on the side just to make ends meet. And not to mention that the children are working these dangerous factory jobs, too. Uh, 
Well, yeah, back then women were almost not even allowed to work. So it makes sense they wouldn't get paid for their worth. The children, though, that always shocks me when I think about children doing these things. Yeah, I agree. The fact that kids are also working in these conditions is cray. Yeah. Now, we know all of this because Frances would interview these women. She would speak to these factory owners to raise workers' wages. She would come face to face with pimps, drug dealers, and all the people that preyed on immigrant women just looking for work. Oh, snap. Frances was brave, also known as a badass. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm impressed by her. Yeah, so she would continue this research and work for some time. She worked in Philadelphia, then in New York City. And in New York City, that's actually where she earned her master's degree in economics and sociology from Columbia University. Get your degree on, Francis. Yeah, educate yourself. Yeah. So while in New York, she also lived in a settlement house mm. in a Greenwich Village. Ooh. A little <laughs> clue word, light bulb. <laughs> there, she also became part of the women's suffrage movement, advocating for women's rights. She's getting involved with all these causes. Very impressive. Yeah, that's totally awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, living in New York, she rubbed elbows with a lot of famous people. She was actually buddy-buddies with who we now know as the villain, Robert Moses. But at the time, Francis only knew the young Robert Moses. So in this scene of the movie, in our heads, we would get a glimpse of Robert Moses' origin story, where he shares with Francis his vision of changing the New York City skyline via picnic amongst friends. How idyllic. Yeah, that's nice. Like meeting the human Robert Moses, building up the character. I like it, but I don't. It makes it harder to dislike him. <laughs> yeah, so Robert Moses, it, it's just interesting to think of this is the man before he becomes a monster. But anyway, another friend of Francis was a young Upton Sinclair and a Sinclair Lewis. Was that the Jungle Book guy? And didn't he run for governor of California? No, that's the jungle guy. There wasn't a blue bear in the factories. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but anyway, so rumor has it, though, that Upton had a crush on Francis. <gasps> gonna laugh. But felt, Ooh. Yeah, but felt like he wasn't good enough for her. Because at the time, they were just friends, and he was still a struggling writer doing research for his book, in quotation marks, The Jungle, <laughs> which reminds me of Francis's work and the research in the settlement houses. Wait, what does The Jungle or Upton have to do with Francis's work? Well, I do know that Upton was a socialist and he was pushing for lots of progressive reforms during the 30s. And he ran for governor of California in 1934 on a lot of those ideas. So I would assume that her work and research aligned with a lot of his ideals. Interesting. OK, well, anyway, back to Francis and the connection between Upton Sinclair and Francis's work. Other than love. Because. Other than friendship, their main connection. <laughs> anyway, their main connection were the settlement houses because they had become a very popular place to network because you would find women and activists from all walks of life. 
And some of these houses were located in industrious areas. Like, for example, in 1911, Frances was hanging out with one of her homegirls having tea when in the neighborhood there was a fire known as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. I was wondering what this would happen. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was actually a horrific accident. You'll have to also consider that at that time, there weren't any real building codes. They had locked exits, faulty fire escape exits, and no real fire sprinkler system. This factory employed mostly immigrant women and children, too. It's absolutely nutty to think of a time that people lived in without codes in smoke cities and hells with lids off. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, crazy. It just seems completely unthinkable today. Yeah. Um, and it gets worse. So like when Frances approached the scene, she witnessed women and children jumping out of the window to their deaths, trying to escape the fire. 146 workers died that day. Oh, my God. That's that's I don't have words. So alongside meeting Florence Kelly, witnessing this horrible accident at the factory became another pivotal moment in Francis's life. I mean, how could it not? Just listening to this, it's become a pivotal moment in my life. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, so after witnessing the fire, this propelled Francis into political activism. Through her connections, she made it to the New York State's capital in Albany to lobby for better work hours for women. And through these connections, she even ended up knocking on the door of President Teddy Roosevelt. Whoa, those are some connections. Well, anyway, through her connections, she became the executive secretary for the Committee on Safety in the city of New York. Cool. Sounds very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this position, she investigated labor conditions, and through her work, she became better at lobbying at the state legislature helping aid the passing of laws like restricting the hours for women workers, safer factory conditions, and a secure minimum wage. That's very interesting. I wonder what the difference between men and women working hours were. Jessica, you know how many hours she reduced it to? Yeah, she was able to reduce it so that women and children worked 54 hours a week. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's not forget yeah. the children. Let's not forget the kids. And that's the reduced hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> um, what were they I mean, working but it's before? A solid. Like, oh, my God. More than that. Mm. And I think the other important aspect is that some of the regulations that she introduced included things like practice fire drills and space occupancy limits, things that seem so common today. Yeah, again, it's wild to think about a time when those precautions weren't just commonplace. Totally. Like, oh my God, she thought of space occupancy limits? That's so important. So depending on the dimensions of a space and how it is used, there are codes as to how many people can occupy it at one time to avoid things like, you know, dying in a fire and... Knowing those numbers is part of our job as architects and super important, not only for life safety reasons, but for a bunch of other decisions that drive a project. So we owe a lot to Francis. Yep. And 
That's just the beginning, okay? Because also around that time in 1913, Francis got married to Paul Caldwell Wilson, an economist slash budget expert that worked with mayors and other politicians. Hold up. What happened to Jungle Book Guy? Yeah. Nah, girl. Home girl wasn't interested in him. And not to be that person, but Paul came from money. Paul was also in the same circles as Francis when they lived in Chicago, even though they didn't even meet until later. They actually met in 1911. And like the other ladies that we have discussed, they would write love letters to each other like every day, sometimes twice a day. So it made sense that they wanted to get married. Are you saying that she didn't like Jungle Book Guy because he was poor? Well, I'm not not saying that. (laughs) I am saying that Paul did have money, though. Okay, got it. Understood. Okay, but anyway, so in 1913, they got married. Yay, congrats. Okay, so if you noticed when I introduced this lady at the beginning, I had said that her name was Frances Perkins and not Frances Wilson. Yeah, I caught that. Yeah, so so Frances didn't change her last name. And you can imagine it caused a great scandal. But Frances already had made her connections with her name. She didn't want to change that. And with Paul being in the political sphere, she didn't want to seem biased or that her marriage to Paul would cause a conflict of interest when she would speak to other people that might have been opposed to the politician that Paul would work with. That makes sense. This lady is so smart and ahead of her times. I love it. Ahead of her times or the times? All the times. Well, it's her time. You know, it's the time of freaking Francis. That's true. (laughs) The year of Francis. Okay. The lady of the times. Well, together, Paul and Francis had a daughter, Susanna, who they called Sadie. Oh, Sadie. That's a cute nickname, too. So many cute nicknames in this episode. Right. Fanny, Sadie, Eunice, Nana. Okay. We don't (laughs) call random people Nana. (laughs) Just my Nana. (laughs) Yeah, just your name. Well, actually, so Frances had a tough time with all of her pregnancies prior to Sadie. Frances had suffered a miscarriage. She had also given birth to a stillborn. So with both births, she had to have C-sections, which wasn't as common as it is today. Actually, once she found out that the mortality rate was very high for women that had cesarean births, Frances decided to act again. Yeah, Uh, I'm just so sorry to hear that she went through that. I can only imagine how hard that must have been. But from stories I know, it can feel really isolating and like it doesn't happen to anyone else. But it's way more common than we think, even today. And so I'm glad that she was inspired to do something about it. Yeah. So Frances, she became a part of the hospital board and her efforts helped lower the mortality rate in mothers, which reminded me. About episode 21, lady, Florence Nightingale. Ooh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> wow. I'm not even done yet. Oh. I'm not even done. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to get into so much detail because we are barely getting to the good stuff with this woman. So in preparation for this episode, I listened to a book um, that goes into way more detail on Frances Perkinson's life. Um, This book is called The Woman Behind the New Deal, The Life of Francis Perkins, FDR's Secretary of Labor and His Moral Conscious by Kristen Downey. Y'all, this book is so good. (gasps) 
So there's the physical book, but the audiobook is just as good. But it's so, it's so long. I still haven't <laughs> finished it yet. It's 17 hours long. Well, oh. and that's it. I tried to listen to this book at double speed to try to finish before we recorded this episode. Adding it to my Libby holds. Good idea. Yep. Add it because it's so good. And OK, so like the title suggests, Francis was the woman behind the New Deal. Uh, Yeah, I noticed that. Can you tell us a little more? Yes, please. OK, but before we get ahead of ourselves, let's start at around 1918. So Francis needed to start making some money because after giving birth, she was mostly volunteering and her husband had spent all of his inheritance and was not working slash he was also living with like a manic depression. Again, listen or read the book because it goes into so much detail. Oh, wow. That's a lot to be dealing with. Yeah, poor Francis. I have to get my hand on this book. I need more details. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. Because in the book, you will also learn more about her relationship with Al Smith. Now, they had worked together when she worked as the executive secretary. And in the book, y'all, it gets so juicy. Just saying. Another scandal? Anyways, I mean, it was like a hush-hush scandal, if you know what I mean. Slash can't be too confirmed. But anyway... <laughs> What a tease, Jessica. <laughs> She's not going to tell us anything. Read the book. Okay, uh, we are like, this is a 30-minute episode, y'all. Like, we can't. Cause it's just, you, you can't. And I don't want to taint her reputation. Because she's still a boss lady. Sure. Because, well, the point is that in 1918, Al Smith becomes the governor of the state of New York. And with his position, he invites Francis to become a part of the Industrial Commission for the state of New York. Wow. Very cool. Then in 1926, when Franklin Roosevelt becomes governor, he appoints Francis to become the chairwoman of the commission, which is basically the chief post in the state labor department. Gee, she moved up the totem pole pretty darn quick. Get it, girl? Yeah. Yep. Now, in this position, Francis was able to expand factory investigations and reduced the work week for women to 48 hours and championed minimum wage and unemployment insurance laws. What a champion! Amazing. Yep. So when Roosevelt becomes president in 1933, guess who he called to be a part of his cabinet? Little Miss Francis. You know what? Yeah. I'm just going to call her AKA Boss, period. Yeah, she's a boss. Now, Miss Boss Francis... She became the first woman to be a part of the presidential cabinet as the secretary of the Department of Labor. Yeah. Way to go, Francis. What an achievement. Francis was also one of the two cabinet members to serve his entire presidency. Whoa, that's really impressive because he was in office for like over 12 years. <laughs> Whoa, mm -hmm. that's a lot of years, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize that. Four terms. Whoa. Four terms. Well, four elections, so, I should say. Yeah, four elections. So, also like the book title, Francis played a key role on constructing the New Deal, which included items like the Social Security Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, you know, just to name a few. Casual. Yeah, we talked about this on episode 24, Catherine Bauer. She was involved with the New Deal too, but... 
not to the extent that Francis was rocking it up. Yeah, that's really cool <laughs> to know that there was a woman behind the New Deal. Yes. I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface, but Francis's term ended once President Truman took office in 1945. After that, she did continue to work on the United States Civil Service Commission. So she would have been 65. She could have retired. But which of our ladies does that? You ask? None of them. That's who? Well, maybe one of them out of 28 that we've talked about. So there you go. Margaret Ingalls retired and she hung out with her friends and drank her tea. Remember? Yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Frances, she drank tea, but that's not all she did. Okay. <laughs> Because um, her husband, Paul, he had died in 1952 and Perkins left the commission and began teaching at Cornell University and other institutions until she passed away on May 14th, 1965. Goodness gracious. This lady was in all the rooms where it happened, Mm. had her (laughs) hands in all the decks, spoke up for all the underdogs. So amazing. Imagine if Frances was alive today. She would have $50 minimum wage. <laughs> we would actually work 40 hours for real. Everybody would have housing, health insurance. She would cure world hunger. We would have world peace. <laughs> yeah. No cancer. <laughs> Frances for president of forever. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no kidding. She really made her mark and she worked for legislative changes. Amazing. Also, side note, she like health insurance that if she had more time or like if FDR was in president, like lived longer throughout his presidency. If he hadn't died. If he didn't die. If he didn't die. um, Health insurance was one of her like regrets that Mm. she couldn't include in uh, the New Deal. Interesting. I mean, she did so much. It was like. Girl, it's okay. I'm curious. Like, this lady served through all the terms. Why did Truman decide that she wasn't good enough to stay in his cabinet? Or did she leave when he took office? Oh, good question. I mean, that I'm not sure of, but every position that Francis took, it caused so much, like, scrutiny. Mm. Like, she never took the role. Yeah, she never took it easy like they never welcomed her with like opening arms and stuff i wonder like could she have just stayed in her role for the rest of that term or something or did she decide or maybe they maybe he did decide to like give her the boot i don't know yeah that i don't know if she actually left she was already in the in the role it's not like she's taking a new position you know yeah yeah that's true another reason Uh, to read the book yes i'm guessing yeah, because yeah. like I said, I didn't even make it to uh, this, this part. part of the book. <laughs> so I was so remains to be yeah, seen. So, so episode thirty. If I have more, I will. If we'll I finish, back. I will talk about it. I'll circle back. Well, with Francis, they and all of her like amazing awesomeness. There are a lot of places that have become national landmarks in her name. Like for example, she had a family home in Maine. And then the house that she lived in in Washington, D.C., the Department of Labor building here in Washington, D.C. is also called the Francis Perkins building. Oh, that's so cool. Must go visit. 
The Ark Ventures list keeps growing and growing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I know that this season's theme was women who were not a part of the AEC industry, but had influenced it. And to me, at first, it seemed like Francis might have been a stretch. And in some ways, I think that maybe it was. But I love everything that Francis represents for women. And some of the things that she did influence does affect the built environment today in some shape or form. I mean, it even affects more than just architects and designers, but the workforce in general. Oh, to me, Frances was definitely not a stretch. I mean, she had me at building codes. Yeah. She thought about the well-being of people in spaces. If that doesn't relate to architecture in the building environment, I don't know what does. Yeah, for sure. You can definitely see her influence on architecture through fire safety codes. And it reminds me of how Margaret Engels influenced air quality standards in buildings. She's definitely someone who made a difference for the built environment that today feels standard and obvious to us. Yes, Frances completely represents the type of lady and the type of work we wanted to talk about this season. So thank you, Jessica, for sharing her story today. My pleasure. <laughs> but yeah, she's pretty cool. All right. So now we have reached the second half of the episode, the Karyatid. So Najidi, can you remind us what a Karyatid is? You got it, Chica. A Karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a Karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. So this week's Karyatid goes to... Asia Brown! Yay! Asia! Yes. Okay, so actually I should have said Mayor Asia Brown. Because at the age of 31, Mayor Asia Brown is the youngest mayor ever elected in the city of Compton, California. Ooh. Asia has a bachelor's degree in public housing, urban planning, and development, along with a master's degree in urban planning with a concentration in economic development from the University of California. Asia launched a 12-point revitalization plan called New Vision for Compton, where it focused on the quality of life, youth development, infrastructure, education, and economic development. Oh, that's really cool. Another designer in politics. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yes, Lizzie, good point. Designers have such a holistic approach that is needed in politics. I feel like there has been a theme this season of advocating for designers to get political. I like how Francis and Aja were on the same wavelength, attacking a whole bunch of problems and focusing on quality of life, infrastructure, the kids. Let's not forget the kids. Mm. How'd you learn about Aja? I want to look her up. Well, you know, my social media addiction. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> you know, because social media coordinator here and all. I follow this Instagram account called Strong Women, Strong Places. And Asia was a part of their Women Who Shape Place series, which, by the way, there are also a couple of our previous characters listed in that series. Hey, hey, hey. Ooh, that sounds like a good account to follow. Shout out to Women Empowering Women. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So before we go, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, 
And most of all, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Francis and Asia, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your representatives, your mayors. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to keep learning about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcasts at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Bye! 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 Well, anyway, the family would move to Worcester to be with Frederick's brother. Uh, did I say it wrong again? You just said it weird. Like you're... <laughs> <laughs> like you're like fancy, like you're trying to be British or something. But how, it's Worcester. 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 Yeah, just say Worcester. 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 I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.